Okay. So, you know, we get the whole thing about managers being real cagey about this stuff because um, they know it's, uh, it's, it's, it's infringing on their control and they also are unable to sort of make a difference of kind in types of control. Um, then um, we get into the neurophysiological model. Uh, there is the description of the para, uh, the peripheral ganglia and the uh, paravertebral ganglionic chains, uh, which I think is what you were describing, Jeremy. Is that right? Yeah. So we can see them actually uh, laid out next to the spine in, in figure 17. Um, so these are really important, actually. Um so these paravertebral ganglionic chains, which really govern the stability of the internal environment, for they are the feedback regulators and integrators. In an earlier chapter, we saw how command circuit, a command circuit transfer function turns out to be dominated by its feedback transfer function. And in this sympathetic structure, the two-dimensional nature of, of the control is fully revealed. Incidentally, in an electronic circuit, the gain of the system, its capacity to amplify signals, is likely to be variable. In mixing together the various flows of information for different control purposes, some signals may need to be more emphasized than others. In the social system, when the under-managers are communicating, for instance, there's a clear analog of this. People manage very well to grade the relative importance of messages. In the simplest case, by shouting. Again, I'm reminded of Khrushchev's comment about... Can't we get anything done in this country without shouting? Um, uh, <laughs> and then in progressively more subtle ways. Notes are labeled urgent. Oral sentences are prefixed, don't forget this one, and so on. In the physiological system from which this model is drawn, there is also an analog of variable gain. It is provided by the endocrine system, which changes the biochemical conditions in which the neural circuits are operating. Thus, the release of a powerful hormone such as adrenaline changes the rate at which the command system responds. Okay, so um, now as far as I understand, gain is gain corresponds to amplitude, right? Whereas uh, the uh, rate, the response rate uh, that Beer is talking about would correspond to frequency and not amplitude. Um, but the endocrine system kind of manages both of those dimensions, um, from what I can understand here. Um, and then the, the other thing that like is really interesting is he says that... Um, a command circuit transfer function turns out to be dominated by its feedback transfer function. So when we saw the, the, the circuit example in um, the earlier section of the book, there was like a single feedback function. But really what's happening here is like this uh, paravertebral ganglionic chain is kind of like a... It's 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 like a harmonic feedback function that's happening as these different signals travel along it are and are integrated. So it's it's really not like there's a single feedback controller. It's more like you have this kind of composite effect of feedback that is happening along that chain um, and is being regulated by the endocrine system. Uh, okay, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I found this this paragraph or two a little bit tricky, but yeah, I think that's probably the right way to understand it, right? That like the this stuff is kind of like general conditioning, like adrenaline is just like okay, do all of that stuff, but faster, you know, and and so on. So you've got like a fairly coarse dial that you can turn. Um, I think that the point with the gain is that it's variable, right? That like a circuit does x y and z but you can turn it up you know and you can turn it down that's kind of the general conditioning that's going on there um it's very interesting because the, the the output effect is an interaction of all those factors right like um 
you know, obviously your your guitar amplifier or whatever is processing the signal and doing all that kind of stuff, but it's it's doing it in the context of a certain volume that the dial is turned to, um, and that's kind of your your levels of control there. It's um, pretty interesting stuff. Yeah. Right. Definitely. Um, so yeah. Again, Im- uh, important to consider that sort of line that's running parallel to the spine and across the spine, uh, but then also. Uh, to consider that this is not like simply a uh, one trigger multiple response kind of thing. It's like there's a, there's firing happening up and down this thing and across this thing all the time. Um, okay. All right. So, uh, so he talks about the risk of cutting uh, important uh, links, autonomous links, uh, when automating uh, or computerizing, but there's uh, actually another case to consider. Um, in fact, one of the key problems for scientists installing such systems in industry is that the connections they wish to cut are not always successfully cut. For example, a sub office controlling a section of a department may acquire a well-designed production control system and the old-fashioned system it replaces is discarded. The foreman in charge then operates the new system, but some of his charge hands, lacking confidence in this maneuver, are subsequently found to have retained personal systems of their own. They carry little books of private information and try to run their groups of machines from those. Uh, Surgeons have encountered a precisely similar phenomenon when performing trunk sympathectomies. When the sympathetic ganglion is removed, the surgeon does not expect the feedback circuits involved to operate any longer, but sometimes they do. This is because there are sometimes intermediate ganglia trapped between the spinal cord and the sympathetic trunk formed by groups of cells which were arrested during embryonic development in the course of migrating from the neural tube towards the true sympathetic ganglia. They remain halfway down the roots shown in the diagrams uh, called the Rami communicantes uh, and proceed to relay messages from there. So what this really brings to mind for me is the way that Project Cybersyn didn't really quite work. Uh, when um, the project was tried, like when they tried to integrate the project into workplaces in Chile, uh, oftentimes the new management system was subverted by existing management systems in the firm. Uh, the the kind of existing professional uh, norms uh, or working norms. Uh, overrode what they were trying to implement uh, through Project Cybersyn. Um, so actually, uh, there was a big disconnect between what was happening in aggregate and what was happening in the firm level. Um, so that's really the thing that comes the most to mind here uh, is like, yeah, you know, we can talk about how these these connections are really important, but if you do want to redesign the system, you are probably going to run into problems of these kinds of like residual uh, connections that may actually be uh, quite toxic to the system as a whole. Uh, Shane and then Jake. Yeah, I mean they, they could end, they could end up being a kind of involuntary uh, like Operation Gladio kind of stay behind operation, right? Like you know what I mean? Like it's because um, I guess in this in this in this way of thinking about things, the lower levels always have more information than the higher levels. Like like information hiding and sort of in, inscrutability is just a part of reality, right? Like, and so I think it probably points to a general probably a general failure or a general impossibility of. Uh, top-down directives like achieving these kinds of positive change by fiat that like there's always going to be a limit on how how hard and far you can push the signal downwards and that the 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 sort of the lower levels are always going to be more detailed than the higher signal is able to account for so kind of by definition you're just going to end up with these fragments and bits of glass just embedded in in whatever remains and like um you know it's cause just the, the way information works it's it's not going to the top-down directive isn't going to overwhelm the the lower levels, you know. So, like this kind of revolutionary change, kind of necessarily needs to happen from the ground up, so that it can like propagate, it can like hydrate the the the, the structure in the correct direction, without leaving behind remnants, right? 
Yeah, well, and what it also suggests is that, like, wreckers are going to be inherent to any revolutionary process. As soon as you have a revolutionary process, you're automatically going to have wreckers because these residual connections are going to react this way to the revolutionary program. Um, so that's something worth considering. You can't say, like, oh, but there will be wreckers in our revolution. No, there's going to be wreckers. It's just a fact of having one. Um, it's it's inherent to the way these systems work. Uh, Jake, go ahead. Um, yeah, definitely agree with all that. Um, it's just like I was just listening to the uh, the Cosmonaut podcast on Cyberson and like yeah, just them talking about uh, all that stuff is very frustrating. <laughs> frustrating to hear what happened, um, but then also just kind of reminds me of my own struggles in uh in trying to create like these systems and trying to form not formalize systems that existed but create create a better version right of a system that exists um in this case trying to get my people in my organization to use lumio after hearing the uh, episode you guys did and uh seeing that it could solve like something that i've thought as a problem of like lack of centralized repository where people can decide things and information can be stored, that sort of thing. But, um, and just the way I went about it was a little haphazard, a little top down, I suppose. Um, and just now that I'm trying to, I formed a tech collective within my organization to try and do this in like a more democratic and more like bought in way. Um, and just we're thinking about how to get that buy-in right now. We're just, thinking of like sending out surveys to membership and to people in periphery to see what their problems are and then like move forward with solutions to those problems versus like saying like, well, here's the solution to this problem that we know you definitely have. Right. Um, and so that's just, just an interesting thing. And then I also wanted to just to touch on the kind of idea of these like nerves branching off into other nerves, like horizontally and vertically. I just thinking of like the ways in which in that system, any change is like felt by the rest of the system uh, and the level of how much that's felt is correspondent to how severe of like a difference it is or how severe of like a signal it is. And, uh, and yeah, just thinking about that, like what is a passive, what is a passive and like low level way of informing people of the things that are happening uh, in the other parts of the organization in a way that doesn't, that's not just like, alert alert on your like phone or something you know when it's just like oh this person has decided to name the project this thing and it's just like well that's did i need to you know so. yeah yeah the the great invention of the push notification uh the 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 perhaps the greatest stressor in human history uh following the email um so, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you, you have to rely on that, like, positive gossip that the Lumio folks were talking about if you want it to be low level and not, uh, oh, my God, something's going on uh, kind of stuff. Um, OK, cool. Uh, so uh, we are leaving the thoracolumbar outflow from the spinal cord. Uh, which we call the sympathetic nervous system and consider the second part of the autonomic system. So this, I, I think, is going to get to some of the stuff that uh, was brought up earlier is like, well, how does the how does the sympathetic parasympathetic thing fit in with the earlier stuff? Um, so uh, the craniosacral outflow, uh, which gives rise to the parasympathetic nervous system, um, it is remarkable and keenly interesting to the cybernetician that this part should be markedly different in almost every way from the sympathetic part. It is not always easy fully to distinguish the two in terms of anatomy because the body as usual really is immensely complicated, but the outline of this control circuit is clear enough. So the, the parasympathetic system is physiologically very distinct from the sympathetic system. Uh, even if anatomically they are kind of mixed up together. Um, so uh, the system so far 
described is organized in the cause of maintaining a stable entire environment, primarily to obtain a balanced mass response from the whole organism. The target is a general homeostasis. But in addition, each major site of internal activity need, seems to need a more localized, more specific kind of control, which nevertheless cannot be obtained locally. That is, although more action is called for in the vicinity of some particular location, the information required to procure it is highly centralized. If the sympathetic system is, as it were, a middle management function, then the parasympathetic system is a senior management function. Um, interestingly, you know, we kind of see this in people too, right? Like middle managers have a very different habitus from senior managers. Uh, they're just different sorts of people. Um, and and <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a curious thing. Um, uh, this is not to say that the top echelon is corporately involved. We've not broken through to the level of consciousness, still less to volitional control of the organism. But we are talking now about information and direction deriving from high up in the command axis. In the body, the system originates so far up the spinal cord that we are really into the brain, its stock or core. There is a second part, the sacral, as distinct from the cranial outflow, uh, right at the base of the spinal cord, but it may be thought of as part of the higher level system, which is cited for convenience near the lower part of the body it serves. Okay, so um, this is really confusing to me. Uh, what is Beer exactly talking about here uh, in the brain? So he says, um, high up the command axis, it's in the brain, it's stock or core, but it's not the uh, sacral stuff we were talking about earlier. It's still cranial, but it's also not conscious. <laughs> it's in the stock or core, but it's not that like really low level stuff. Uh, Jeremy, yeah, go I, ahead. I find this inscrutable. Yeah. Yeah, refer back to figure 14 in the previous chapter. Okay. He's talking about control echelon three, which right. is the mesencephalon, the pons, the medulla, and the cerebellum. Okay. That's okay. what's governing the parasympathetic system. Okay, right. And then if we think about that in terms of system three, I think I get what he's getting at. Okay, Matt, go ahead. Yeah. Um, uh, so, um, what what I think might might have coming up later is um, so you know I know latency um, uh, um, becomes like a thing in cybernetics, and uh, uh, one of the things is that uh, one of the differences between you know the, the the systems that are governed by the parasympathetic and the sympathetic is that the parasympathetic um, you know it's kind of the rest and digest as opposed to like the the fight or flight of the of the sympathetic, and so like it it's it, it governs systems that like uh, have like a much longer time lag. And so, like, uh, that, that's, that's um, uh, you know, part, part of why I, I, I think that's, that's kind of what, what he's setting up with, like, how different they are. Um, uh, you know, like, often what will happen, like, you know, when you get an adrenaline rush is, uh, um, you know, like, uh, uh, that's, that's why you get nauseous, you know, because your stomach hasn't been doing anything. And it's also why, you know, people who are in a constant state of stress, like, uh, uh, they're more likely to get sick because, like, they're in the, the sympathetic activation for longer. And so there, you know, your, your immune system is one of the things that, you know, uh, resources will be directed away from, you know, and toward, um, toward muscle and stuff. Yeah. Or alternatively, you'll have, uh, uh, excessive autoimmune responses. Like I know when I get sick or sorry, not when I get sick, but when I get stressed out, I'll get, uh, you know, um, allergic flare ups in my mouth and that kind of stuff that happen. Um, right. Uh, okay. So, okay. So that, that helps to clear that up, that this is kind of like system three stuff that we're talking about here. And it's operating at a different time scale than the lower level stuff. Um, okay. Um, so the effects of the sympathetic and parasympathetic systems are largely antagonistic. Um, Moreover, the chemistry of the two systems is largely different. Uh, if another slight oversimplification may be forgiven, the sympathetic system works mostly on ad... Oh my god, I always... I struggle with this word so much. Uh, 
adrenergic, adrenergic impulses, while the impulses of the parasympathetic system are cholinergic. Uh, the former word implies the use of an adrenaline-like substance, while the latter derives from the Greek word for bile, uh, like cleric, uh, or, yeah. Uh, uh, in short, the chemical transmitters which operate the two systems uh, are quite distinct. In any given situation, they seem to produce counter-effects. Typically, the adrenergic impulses increase heart activity, while the cholinergic impulse decreases it. On the contrary, the adrenergic set inhibits, contracts, or constricts many other parts of the body, which the cholinergic set stimulates, relaxes, or dilates. So I think this was something that was um, that really kind of threw me off because you know, Jeremy, you were talking about how um, the uh, sympathetic system is largely uh, about arousal. Uh, and the parasympathetic system is largely about inhibition. But when we go, when we look at this uh, description here, uh, it says the adrenergic set inhibits, contracts, or constricts many other parts of the body, while uh, which the cholinergic set stimulates, relaxes, or dilates. So um, the adrenergic set, I guess, corresponds to the parasympathetic system uh because it no okay because that's that's really confusing it's the other way around right um adrenergic is sympathetic uh yeah and cholinergic is a uh, parasympathetic not just like the, um yeah it's not at the level of uh, of like every system you know i'm uh, uh telling them to speed up or speed down it's just you know like it, uh, uh it's, it's some systems you know you activate you know or, or you know you better regulate you know because like you said uh, uh you know your immune system can it'll get wobbly you know like it'll be overactive or interactive Right. So it's so the the adrenergic set uh, we typically think of as about arousal. Right. But it's actually doing inhibition, contraction or constriction. Um, so, you know, we, maybe we just have to like think about what arousal actually means. Is it, It's like that fight or flight response. Like, you know, like when I. When you, when you uh, anticipate harm, your body seizes up. Um, uh, Matt, go ahead. Is it that um, um, they um, uh, they they, contra they contract or um, uh, um, uh, they, 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 they well well it, it is actually partially um, yeah he, he's maybe not saying part of it well. so 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 when your, when your blood vessels um, uh, um, you know get um, uh, you know into like a more pumpy mood like that that's a lot of contraction like th yeah. that's why um, uh, amphetamine will like cl um, uh, clear up a stuffy nose because it contracts the blood uh, uh, the blood vessels um, right. uh, and, but it's also just that that um, they um, uh, both systems both contract or you know um, uh, both um, uh, upregulate and downregulate uh, different systems so you know um, uh, when when the address and, and and the important thing is just there they um, you know uh, the w one that um, um, stimulates one the other one will inhibit it so you know um, uh, when you when you want to get into more of an, an, an um, a, high, a high arousal state you know uh, your liver becomes a little becomes a little bit less uh, important and so you know it gets downregulated while you know your muscles and your heart get upregulated okay right. Um... And are, that's basically the two systems working in consort, or in concert then, right? Like, it's it's not purely sympathetic. It's also parasympathetic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, uh, uh, you know, you, uh, the, 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 the sympathetic is, you know, in terms of what you experience, like, uh, uh, you know, a sympathetic, you know, is up-tempo. But uh, uh, in terms of, you know, like, what your, um, uh, um, you know, what your immune system experiences, you know, like, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's down regularly. Right, it's the classic, uh, you know, uh, divert auxiliary power to shields on uh, <laughs> on uh, Star Trek. <laughs> um, okay, uh, Shade, go ahead. Yeah, I think the um, the important thing is really the, the the two masters concept, right? That there's there's one circuit that's telling the body, "I want as much oxygen as you can give me," and there's another circuit saying, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, hold the fuck on." oxygen's poisonous we don't want too much of it and that the actual like tuning of blood oxygen levels occurs in the kind of contradiction between these circuits which is th this is fascinating right because it's kind of a dialectical thing but i think it's quite different from the 
I think the usual dialectical thing that we we get when people talk about dialectics, they often kind of do this thing of like, you know, you have the thing one, and then it's it's other thing, and then there's the synthesis, right? That like the contradiction is resolved, and. I think what Beer's getting at here is closer to the kind of like critique of of Hegel, right? That like I think I mean there's a line from Deleuze well, where he yeah. says that nothing nothing ever died of its contradictions, right? That like in fact lively systems are uh, enlivened by by their contradictions. They're not it's not a fatal thing to have a contradiction, right? In fact, it's actually essential in this case that you have these contradictory imperatives to flow yeah between. i mean i mean that, that that sort of toy model of hegel that's you know mm-hmm. easily disseminated and was kind of like taught in russian schools and stuff yeah, yeah. uh is not actually what hegel said right so right, right. uh you know what he describes is actually a bit closer to what's going on here uh cool. where it's point. like yeah. the the contradiction is internalized in the next stage of the dialectical process so mm-hmm. it, it doesn't, it never stops to exist. It's just, yeah, it's recontextualized. Sure. Um, uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, so that, that's, uh, but that, that is a, that is a fair point that like, yeah, these things are dialectically intertwined, but it's not like, oh, you got A, you got B, you got C. It's this like really s- serial process. It's not that. Mm-hmm. It's actually like something that's much more contradictory and parallel um, and it's it's very interesting that like the, um, the 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 homeostasis here is achieved. Like I think we often think of like oh homeostatic balance as like oh the body comes to perfect balance through perfect harmony. But maybe it's it's more that it comes to perfect harmony via perfect uh, conflict. <laughs> that like it is, it is it is actually a balance of perfect conflicting uh, mm-hmm. imperatives that produces harmony. I, I just kind of I, it, it it jumps out at me because I think for for a lot of Marxists they have this kind of again the naive kind of Tony Hegel version where it's like, oh, if something is in a state of contradiction, the contradiction must be resolved and you know the tension must dissipate. Whereas I think what we've got here and what you know Hegel's originally getting at. Is much more like no. These are these are dynamic plateaus of entwined energy flows that you, you shouldn't really expect them to ever resolve. Like that, that whole blood oxygen uh, contradiction that will resolve when you die. Like that's that's how that contradiction resolves. But the, your liveliness comes out of the ongoing like dynamic conflict of the forces. It's a very very interesting kind of turnaround. Right. So I mean, uh, Hegel's concept of the state was obviously really incomplete in ways that Marx criticized. But one thing he talked about was how the state functions through an interaction of corporate and associational bodies. So like, you know, uh, lawyers, journalists, uh, like this is like, this is what Hegel saw as like bourgeois civil society is that you have these uh, associations of different sorts of people and they kind of interact in a conflictual way with each other, but their actions are harmonized through the behavior of the state. Um, yeah, okay. Gotcha. So cool. the problem that Hegel ran into is that the proletariat exists, and the proletariat <laughs> is not corporate in any way. The proletariat is the non-part of the whole, right? It is a part, but it is also a non-part because it is not corporate it is a, it is like a it is a, it is a a body of the state that is produced by the action of civil society but the civil society can only ignore its existence uh, partially it can't actually come to grips with it um the toxic one off <laughs> yeah and so this is like a, a kind of um what do you call that thing an antinomy that that mm-hmm. Hegel ran into with civil society, he started to see at the end of his life that the proletariat was growing and he couldn't think of any way for society to actually deal with that. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was kind of like where the Hegelian system fell down. But in terms of sort of thinking about different organs conflictually interacting with each other and being regulated by the state, I think that, the, that Hegel's model is actually pretty close to what uh, is being described uh, in, in this this section here. Um, cool, good stuff. Uh, Jake, uh, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, it's going to be very brief because I can't at all speak to any of the Hegel stuff. But um, I, I think you know what kind of the confusion of the like the two systems and is just like bringing it back to that idea that I talked about earlier, like the 
positive and negative inhibition, positive and negative, uh, was it suppression or stops? I can't, um, but yeah, just that idea of like something can be constraining something and it can lead to an increase in some other part of the system is I think what he's getting at, or it can be uh, increasing the flow of something, but then that could lead to actually like a narrowing of variety or narrowing of possibility. So I think just it's that like constant flow of back and forth kind of thing that you've been talking about. Right. And so like, um, I think this is really important to consider when we think about what kinds of structures we want in our organizations, right? Because the, I think what he's saying is that the, the um, arousal inhibition dichotomy is actually quite a bit more complex than just those two things. Um, there, there's actually quite a number of dimensions to those, those behaviors. Um, and we need to consider that when we're designing organizations. Um, because yeah, it's, as we've sort of described here, you don't want to get the wrong kinds of signals coming from different places where they don't belong, but we also need to think about what the right kinds of signals are. Um, so I think this is going to be quite important going forward. Um, okay. So, uh, as you said, there's the two, two masters, uh, thing that, that co-regulate, um, it gets into some real weeds here with the with the, the physiology. I don't I don't want to spend too much time on that. Um, you know, we get a lot of discussion of the vagus. Um, I think the only major important point there is that the the vagus stuff and the the higher the system three stuff is providing like metasystemic feedback down onto the operations. Like it's so it's it's a dialectic between local and meta feedback. Um, so, well, that's, that's kind of it, but there's like four fucking pages. Um, right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So, um, this is, there's an interesting point that comes up after that. So he says that essentially, um, it is important to note that the control engineer would not find it possible to regulate comparable artificial mechanisms within industry without using the antagonistic controllers, the feedback systems, and the parallel circuitry, which has been neurophysiologically described. If this is indeed the case, one might wonder how the model itself can be useful in the firm. The answer is that the control engineer is not normally concerned with so many mechanisms which are all interacting, nor with the kind of transfer function found in an anastomotic reticulum. But the management scientist is. Thus, for him, the model provides the bridge between the practical problems of control in the enterprise and the apparently too simple, too analytic, too demanding, computable models of servo mechanics. So he's saying that this um, level of interaction that has been described in the Vegas and in the previous page is actually the bridge between servo mechanism design and organizational design. Um, so we get from the kind of like Ashby earlier level cybernetic stuff to this uh, more very complex systems kind of level through that mediation. So that's going to be like super, super important for understanding how to design organizations. Um, so in engineering, for example, it surely does not often occur that there are two control centers governing a particular activity, one of which is especially concerned to stimulate and the other to inhibit. A competent engineer who has access to the process involved will assuredly coalesce these functions in a single control center within a machine. Yet, in management, the tendency of a somehow basically inhibitory center, such as an admonitory financial director and his staff, or a somehow basically stimulatory center, such as a, uh, in, an enthusiastic development division, to fall victim to ungovernable positive feedback often occurs. Human beings and social groups, which are really effective, tend, that is, to parody themselves. 
so, you know, it's probably interesting in the 18th Rumera discussion to think about how that figures in. Uh, uh, what began as financial prudence ends as a kiss of death. What began as innovatory keenness ends as profligacy. Hence, it is altogether normal in management, in contradiction to some textbook utterances, to find that control of some function that is vital to the enterprise is not, after all, the providence of one decision taker, but of two. Theorists say it must be wrong and still seek explanations for this dire condition in company politics. They try to arrange matters so that authority resides within responsibility in one center, but they themselves are wrong. Twin centers of different tendency may turn out to be one of the necessary consequences of having a control system which is not fully specifiable. Um, so here, I think we actually do, uh, maybe in the sort of in the spirit of the autonomists, see the positive dimension to the design of the American Republic. Right? This is this is uh, you know when the Americans looked at the Romans, they looked at the Venetians. Um, and they tried to design a republic, they did rely on this principle of, of, of checks and balances and competing powers. Um, they did not rely on the principle of a unitary government for exactly, exactly the reason uh, that Beer is describing here, right? That, um, you know, you can have uh, innovative, innovatory keenness ending in profligacy, which is to say you can have a, a unitary assembly which ends up going totally off the rails in revolutionary fervor. Um, so, you know, uh, we tend generally to think that the American uh, approach to uh, organizational design is extremely reactionary uh, because it was designed to prevent democracy from happening. Uh, but there may be a principle there that is actually valuable uh, if if we follow what Beer is saying about management, um, and, and you know, in the same way that it, it speaks against the value of absolute monarchy, right? Um, okay, Shane, go ahead, and then Matt. Yeah, this is this is absolutely fascinating, right? Because this 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 lesson is still basically heresy, right? That like, um, and it, especially in like socialist kind of organizing or like in socialist kind of like political theory, right? That like. This, this this notion that a kind of split brain conflicted mediated sort of dual governor sort of setup or whatever um, is is actually essential and necessary to real dynamic effective governance or whatever it is it's so contra it's so contrary to the usual thing of like one party one state or like that that like the the socialist revolution will you know resolve all tensions and and all mediation will dissipate and so on which is that kind of like yeah sure your your blood oxygen contradiction will fucking dissipate when you die right like this is very 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 interesting right like and he's, he's saying that this this actually this twin twin masters dynamic is actually essential to really effective dynamic control and like you you just can't have one party you can't have one single line you can't it, this is remarkable really yeah well it definitely gets to what we were talking about in like revolutionary strategy about factions and about the failings of uh democratic centralism um but it's also like uh you know this also brings to mind, uh, I, I'm not, I keep forgetting whether it was the Czechs or Hungarians who tried to do this before they were crushed, but like essentially in one of the sort of like revolutionary spring events that happened in the socialist era, uh, I'd have to look into the details. They were trying to divide a parliamentary system which would represent the contradictory interests of a socialist society and check them against each other. Right. So they were trying to come up with like, oh, here's like the producers representatives. Here's the consumers representatives, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, this was sometimes criticized as being like, you know, the precursor to bourgeois society because it wasn't unitary. But like, actually, yeah. this, this this does seem to be gesturing in the direction of what like a socialist version of that would be. Uh, like actually mm. taking into account like the political economy of socialism 
rather than than this saying, well, you know, it's all unitary, we're all workers, and that's the end of it. Because there are yeah. contradictions that arise because people have different workplaces, their their interests as consumers are different than their interests as, as producers in a particular mm. sector, all that kind of stuff, it matters. Um, Isn't that essentially heretical, though, like, in, in our kind of current mood, right? Like, that's, as you said, like, I mean, this, this stuff gets rejected because, oh, no, 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 there won't be any contradictions in socialism, there won't be any conflicts, it's, it's the end of conflict, it's the unitary blob mass of humanity just melds together like the fucking end of Evangelion or whatever. I right. This is really mind-blowing how heretical this is to the to like socialist kind of brain think, you know? Right. Really well, because because we're we're in as socialists, like as communists, we're trying to get past the separation of society and the political. We may need something. We still may need mm-hmm. some kind of mediation um, uh, yeah. to to resolve uh, the conflicts that arise in society, which isn't just having you know, daddy on top telling everyone what to do. Uh, Matt and then Rudy. Yeah, I mean, I, I think as, as a good um, uh, concrete example, it's why um, uh, worker co-ops still need unions. Like, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the problem with American government isn't that there is like a, you know, a moderating body. You know, the, the problem is that it's protecting property owners, like at the expense of everyone else. Like, uh, yeah, I, mean, I, you know, I was never big on the idea of a commune state. Like, I, I don't like none of that. Like, uh, you know, personally, my goal isn't really to, you know, abolish the social or political or whatever. I just want to socialize property relations and democratize the economy. And uh, uh, yeah, and as as um, another concrete example of like um, having you know like the two um, um, uh, streams you know um, moderating each other. You know, um, uh, in uh, I've worked in you know, the labs you know where they're doing biomedical research and like the interplay between you know um, uh, the MDs where you know it's first do no harm and you know the PhDs where it's first do whatever seems interesting. Like I mean, like, like that dynamism is what drives it. And like you kind of do need both sides. Like, like uh, and even when someone is an MD PhD, like they're usually still more one or the other. Like, uh, and so you know, and the, 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 there kind of is no reducing that. Like, yeah, like, like you need you know two sort of uh, antagonistic things. Okay, uh, let's go to Rudy and then uh, go to Jeremy. Yeah, on that topic, I was thinking about because within the Soviet system, you had some degree of debate, even if factions were banned until 1929 or 30, where Stalin just decides to eliminate everything. And it's funny because you're saying this thing that he claimed that essentially claimed socialism has been achieved, there will be never any problems. And then one of the aspects, like modern Maoism, says like, no, you didn't do that. You always have to struggle against the bourgeois ideas. And that was the whole thing of cultural revolution. But we talked about this. I think Jeremy put it very, very well a few sessions ago, how this is simply not a solution because of it's not able to generate stability. It's just a sudden outflash of energy. This is really interesting thinking about how you can get an actual stabilizing and destabilizing system which is not just reliant on flashbacks of energy and it's not reliant to simply a force that takes it out which is what happens with when stalin decides to take it out by force yeah and i think that's maybe where you get some of the pro-americanism of the autonomists um in trying to think about what the commonwealth looks like it's just you know a lot of their stuff is really frustrating um uh jeremy go ahead So a couple observations. One, you know, as a parent, when you when you're when you have two parents parenting a child, it's really easy to fall into one of them being the generous benefactor who spoils the child and does all this encouraging and the other one being the disciplinarian who makes sure that they do their homework and they do their chores and so it's it's a really the idea that there are two bosses one of whom is like the uh chief arousal officer and the other is like the chief inhibition officer i've seen that play out in household dynamics you know um, and also, like, you know, I, we socialists spend way too much time coming up with analogies from the Russian Revolution, but I think a good one is looking at the cluster of forces involving protelcult and narcompros and, you know, the art movement of people like Tatlin and the poetry of Mayakovsky 
being very revolutionary, but also being very exuberant. You know, it's something that Krupskaya was involved in in her education work until it was utterly crushed from above. The, to me, the most interesting thing about the Russian Revolution are these kinds of forces, you know, the commissariat of enlightenment that Luna Charsky ran. Um, these things are incredible. They're so interesting and they're so revolutionary that obviously they had to be squashed and most of the people involved killed because the the inhibitory bosses just couldn't handle what was exploding out from under them. In a, in a far less uh, interesting example, we could uh, see what's happened to Google recently. Um, <laughs> you know, all, all the, the happy, exuberant, uh, playful, uh, you know, wokeness of Google uh, has been stamped down by the inhibitory response of uh, management. Um, and uh, the era of uh, joy is at an end. Um, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, it's all sadness from here on out. But uh, Jeremy's example of the parenting is extremely interesting and important. I think that, like, because I mean, uh, my partner and I are very conscious of that same dynamic with our with our daughter, right? That like we're very conscious to not fall into that dynamic so that we're, we're consistent. Like we basically speak with one voice. And I think um, this is kind of why I keep emphasizing this thing of like identifying functions and not people um, or not, not objects that there's a, there are contradictory functions. And the fact that there are, there are two contradictory functions and there happen to be two people means that we automatically associate one with a person and the other with a person, it just, it just, it's such an obvious matchup. But what we should really do is lift those functions off of the body of the people and disperse them amongst the people involved so that both of the parents act as inhibitors and stimulators as appropriate. So that the, the inhibition and stimulation functions are spread across, they're load balanced across the bodies of the two people so that you don't end up identifying a function with a person. I think that's that's going to be absolutely crucial for a kind of socialist society, for a liberated society, is that these managerial functions cannot be identified with people specifically. Like a manager would be a abstract decision nexus amongst people rather than a guy, you know, like we have to make this stuff not be about guys or people, right? Like, and that could, that can sometimes sound a bit harsh, like, oh, you know, cause like, it's like, oh, well, we care about people. And like, yeah, I care about people too. But like, these functions are not people and they shouldn't be. Like they should be lifted out and distributed and um, not just like directly identified with particular people. Well, and another, I agree with that. And another thing we, you need to, to bear in mind is the recursive dimension of these systems which doesn't really come through very much in this chapter for the purposes of simplicity. Uh, but the, the recursion is there. So, you know, um, it's, it's even one person is not simply one role. Um, uh, it shouldn't be, at least. Um, uh, Matt, go ahead. Yeah, um, uh, just again to, 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 to the recursion. Um, I, th I think it was um, uh, 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 Jake that mentioned, um, uh, um, you know, th this playing out at the genetic level, which is you know a great example of how yeah, like yeah, e even at the even at the smallest you know level of the individual cell, you know, there actually is something not entirely dissimilar to this whole thing, you know, uh, working. Definitely. Um, okay, so then we really, really, really get into the weeds with the physiology. Um, so, uh, you know, they're doing, there's like a mechanical example that is, or a, an electronic example that's being uh, an analogized to the physiological example here. Um, uh, I don't think you know, much here, really. You know, I, I, I I don't really want to talk about this in detail. Like the, the diagram that is there isn't very illustrative of what's going on. It's just like, Hey, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's very complicated, I guess is what I could mm -hmm. take from that. Um, I think, I think my kind of take from this is that like, I think it's the thing I mentioned right back at the start of that. What's in the diagram here is an aut an autonomous uh, system for regulating the respiratory 
system. Yeah. But it kind of turns out that 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 respiratory system isn't just in the lungs it's distributed up and down the spinal column and in the lungs and it's 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 more vague and weird than we're accustomed to thinking like we we think to ourselves okay the lungs manage themselves but not really like the the, the respiratory system manages itself but the respiratory system is not identical to the lungs it's more spread out and weird yeah so it says uh, layers of control yeah. it says it in page 116 these authors show that the respiratory system is concerned to do something more than regulate an operating system. It is true that a chemical control, a muscle control, and an airway control are all necessary. In a business, using the model, it is likewise necessary to control the flow of material, to control plant, and to control the flow of cash. Moreover, it is necessary that all three functions should be controlled in combination so that the organic system of body or business operates in an internal harmony. But, say Preben and Fincham, after making their servo analysis, the control of respiration is also organized to work at minimum cost. This is achieved by ensuring that the ventilator, uh, ventilatory gas exchange and the metabolic gas exchange are equal. The mechanisms by which they see this being accomplished has three levels, and these levels exactly parallel the planning activities of senior, middle, and junior management in my own analysis of autonomic control in an industrial enterprise. Furthermore, the mechanism works by a precise technique which I have often installed to control physical production. Um, so uh, we get into the three levels of control. Uh, uh, so we have the highest level defines the total effort to be expended and the time over which it is to be dissipated. Um, so, uh, you know, that's what it does. Uh, it is it is impossible to keep the ratio under continuous surveillance and to adjust the future of the system to its immediate past. So whether we speak of respiratory control in the body or production control in a works uh, we are operating on the same cybernetic principles which apply to all adaptive systems. So evaluating the optimal predicted activity of a breath uh, with the actual activity in that breath. So we're just checking the actual versus the optimal is, is the highest level. Uh, we then we get to the next two levels, interpreting the higher level instructions into more detailed patterns of activity. They are also responsible for initiating the feedback signals which enable the higher controller to make predictive plans. Uh, in, in so doing, the feedback data are reduced at the low and intermediate level controllers so that only the significant information about the accuracy of the prediction is fed back to the main controller. Again, this exactly parallels the industrial control system already mentioned. So does the uh, systematic improvement facility built into the respiratory controller, which feels its way into the future by the criterion of maximizing the productivity function, which is the measure of effectiveness in both systems. Um, so it's saying the next two levels do feedback to the higher system interpreting higher level instructions and optimization at their at their level uh jeremy and then shane so this these sets of metrics he comes up later in a future chapter in coming up with metrics of actuality capacity capability and potentiality and then there's ratios of all of them and Beer took those three metrics very, very, very seriously. I mean, CyberSyn, most of the data going up and down CyberSyn are just those three metrics on lots of different levels. Now, I find this fascinating because I've never seen anyone else do this. And I have no idea whether Beer is right or not that you can capture so much information from these three metrics. But this is what he's hinting at is this idea that when you have one of these systems, you regulate it by constantly comparing the actuality with the capability, of comparing the actuality with the potentiality, of comparing capability with potentiality. And so one of the things I'm excited for us to do in this group is really look at whether these three metrics work. I mean, this very much ties into Beer's concept. He doesn't write about it much here, but he writes it in other books about entelechy, 
where a system should be constantly pushing you to expand beyond your boundaries and to evolve out of the small nucleus which you are into what you possibly could be. And beer takes this on so many levels in uh, Platform for Change. It's really his ideas that human purpose is to expand out to the far reaches of intelligence as being agents of human evolution. And so this starts a process that in beer goes very, very far, but I have no idea whether this is moonshine or not. So I'd be really curious to see where this goes, whether he's right about this or not. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, it's uh, as as Marx uh, describes in, in the sort of revolutionary prophecy at the end of Capital Volume 1, where he says, like, the integument is broke asunder. It's like, ah, out, out of the nucleus into the world. Uh, okay. Um, Shane and then Rudy. Yeah, just a very quick one. Like at the, at the very last part of the chapter, he's like, um, this kind of autonomic control, this like layered feedback system of autonomic control doesn't preclude conscious, uh, like higher metasystem interventions. Like, you know, uh, I could decide to hold my breath. Um, but then if I were to get distracted and start breathing again, well, the, the, it's, I would get distracted and that would loosen the grip of conscious control and then the auto automatic stuff would just take over again. Or I could hold my breath until I pass out, at which point the autonomic breathing will just take over again anyway. Like the the, the autonomic system gets its kind of its say in the end, right? Like that, and there's there's limits to the conscious intervention. Um, that the the the, the, this, the system will the system will make you pass out to a point where it it regains control from from the from the conscious element, right? And it's like, ha, nerd, you fucking made yourself faint, you know? <laughs> and then it just it just keeps breathing, it keeps doing its thing once it's knocked you out, right? Like it's kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a good point. Uh, Rudy, go ahead. Yeah, pivoting a bit on what Jeremy said, something I've been really thinking about is how do you measure the goodness of a scientist? Because well, as a person in academia, I'm always faced with metrics which don't really correspond to goodness. And I do feel that modern things try to do that. They try to quantify performance, but they do it in ways that aren't great and then Overall performance tends to drop because you tend to optimize for things which are being measured, which might not be what's actually good. Like, it's not good to measure amount of papers published because then I end up doing what you call salami publishing, is publishing every piece of data and in a separate paper and it just gets drowned in a big pool of noise. So I feel like one of the problems in the future we will have is defining what should be measured and what is good, right? And that's, you know, all this ethics problem. And I see just AI going straight into this because if you can optimize music, you end up with the most bland Swedish compositor's music, which everybody listens to. You optimize clickbait, you end up with BuzzFeed, right? So it doesn't say like if you optimize for something, it doesn't need to be good. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, Jake. Um, yeah, I, I think that's that's. I definitely agree with that. Like the idea of like uh, optimizing for something and then it corrupts what you're actually looking for. Which, I mean, yeah, maybe it's not able to be optimized for. Like if you can't quantify it, you can't really optimize for it. Um, and I guess this this like leads me to be just thinking about like what. Yeah, I, I like if the idea is, or maybe I want the idea to be that we should be like allowing for as much human possibility as possible and that means like i don't know what that means but maybe that means just like optimizing for like more low level things or things that are just like for that stability of the system in a way versus like an outcome of the system um and i'm not sure i mean i'm sure i'm sure this is talked about in like later in the book or something but well, yeah. I mean, I think one point we can take from this chapter is that the optimization is not going to be uh, monodirectional. It right. will be antagonistic and multidirectional um, uh, if it's going to work well. Uh, 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 Matt and then Shane. 
Yeah, um, uh, one, one, one thing that, you know, like they they, they say, you know, um, you know, took like a lot of work, but they only but they don't describe it all um, uh, in cybernetic revolutionaries that just I wish they, you know, uh, went into more is like a, they put a lot of work into designing the KPIs for like the different uh, factories and stuff. And just like I just give me an example to just I, I, I like I, I re- that, that, that feels so important, especially like, you know, we live in an era where so many things are governed by these, uh, you know, by, by the, you know, some loss function for machine learning algorithm. I just, if there's a book uh, 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 um, uh, in any of his work or even just historical work that like, you know, maybe uh, goes into his process for figuring out KPIs or just seeing what they were in Chile, like that would be, that'd be dope. I'd, I'd like to see this. Yeah, totally. Uh, Shane. Yeah, I was just going to make the point about the the, the the multiple masters, right? That like, I mean, it, it should be clear that like just optimizing for ad clicks or whatever for BuzzFeed just produces this bland sludge of like in, indistinct mess, right? Like that it's, and entropy just floods the field, right? Like, um, and so, yeah, I think, I think it illustrates the necessity of multiple controllers and this kind of like conflicting dynamics to produce, to, to allow for dynamism. And it, it might not be so much that we have to, institute multiple conflicting dynamics to uh, to make things dynamic, but that things are already dynamic and conflictual anyway. It's just that we artificially repress them by insisting on one one metric, uh, that we, we narrow the field artificially down to a single master metric, which, which actually robs the whole thing of its dynamism. So it, it, we may not need to stimulate dynamism so much as we need to stop clamping on it. Um, and just let it let it roll, you know. Yes, let a thousand flowers bloom. Um, Rudy, go ahead. Yeah, on that topic, and just to say out loud what was said in the chat. Sometimes you need people to fail, and if you optimize too much, you just get trapped in local minima. I mean, there's people who failed all their lives too, so that then they finally, by when they're sixty, they come up with something brilliant. And if they had been optimized all the way along, then maybe they would have never gotten to this point because they would not have been allowed to fail. Yeah, and I've, I've seen that discussed quite a bit uh, in sort of like, I don't know, not really socialist literature, but kind of like general letter stuff um, about how our society um, is constantly uh, eliminating spaces where weirdos can do weird things uh because like in the name of local optimization just like a like you know or or just general system optimization um and this is really quite toxic like uh you know i used to study at kyoto university and you know i, I didn't have the best experience there but one thing that Kyoto University had a reputation for was being a bunch of weirdos. Um, and, uh, like, you know, the Tokyo University is like the button-down, serious academics who get shit done. Uh, whereas Kyoto University had the reputation of just, like, having a bunch of eccentrics and fail-sons and, and that kind of thing. Um, and it was kind of sad... I mean, definitely people fought tooth and nail to maintain that, but it was kind of sad to see um, that dying out as I was there and being replaced with sort of like, you know, uh, homogeneous uh, international university excellence discourse um, and management practices. Uh, but yeah, you know, uh, I, I think that's a pretty, pretty important thing. Um, and hopefully something socialism would allow for is us to be a bit weird. Uh, Jeremy, go ahead. Yeah. Um, when I was at the new school, I took a course called, uh, social construction of the avant-garde and it was an amazing sociology of art class. And they were talking about the beginnings of the French avant-garde painters, uh, the Impressionists as they formed, I mean, sure, there was avant-garde movements for that, but like talking about the Impressionists, that at the time there was a massive competition that was an annual competition where the prize was a lot of money and fame and you'd be set. And it was such a popular competition 
that when they had the gallery of exhibits, it was floor-to-ceiling paintings in this massive, massive gallery in Paris, and you couldn't see most of the paintings, even if you wanted to. There were just too many. And so the Impressionists had the idea of painting really bright, gaudy, flourishing colors because your eye would naturally draw to it. And they were saying that the, in the course they were talking about the cafes in Paris would let you just sit there for hours. And a lot of the painters were really poor and really broke. And if they got a cup of coffee, they could just sit there for hours. And it created these very, you know, fertile places for people to share ideas, talk to each other, and spend time together. And that created a lot of these avant-garde movements. You know, uh, 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 Louis Aragon in Paris Peasant talks about the bar where all the French Dadaists hung out and came up with surrealism together. And the bartender made a drink called the Dada for them. And he, in Paris Peasant, he goes back to visit and someone asks him if he wants a Dada and from the point of view of the cafe, the Dadaists are the people who hang out in that cafe and drink, you know? And so you need these structures. My, my undergraduate experience at the New School was like that because back then, my undergraduate school, Eugene Lang College, was an experimental seminar school. And any weirdo in New York City could teach a class there. So I had a class in the Iranian Revolution taught by someone who fought in the Iranian Revolution. And there were like weirdo communists teaching classes. You know, I had someone from the Italian Communist Party teaching Gramsci. And it was amazing. And all that is gone. It's, you know, upset parents who are worried about their children's jobs killed it all. And it's so heartbreaking. I had one class taught by this delightful weirdo who had no college degree and his only qualification was he was drinking buddies with Isaac Asimov. And he came up with really amazing classes and taught them and they were fabulous. I took everyone I possibly could. And as soon as, you know, neoliberalism took over, he was fired immediately because he didn't have a college degree. Oh yeah, that, that that's a good story though. Nonetheless, uh, I appreciate it. Um, Amazing, yeah. So, uh, I mean, yeah, uh, failure uh, and eccentricity uh, are important to these systems uh, for obvious reasons, right? Like you need some capacity for mutation in order to evolve. Um, all right, uh, so let's uh, just uh, take a look at the final sentence. Um, so he gives the example of breathing that Shane briefly went over, uh, and then he says, uh, the same is true in management, and in the next chapter we shall study more closely the consequences of these neurophysiological and control theory insights for the business enterprise. So the insights about the relationship between conscious direction and autonomous regulation. That's what we're going to see in the next chapter, uh, which is autonomic management, which is, you know, obviously the synthesis of these two concepts. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'll see you next week. Uh, thank you, everyone, for participating. It ran longer than I expected, but I think it was a good discussion. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. See you again. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.